chapter eight, uh, 4, verse 18 is where we left off. Um, just a review real quickly in case you, I can't remember who was here or not last week. But last week is one of those both surprising but also somewhat humorous sections of of this uh, important book of Exodus where Moses gives God the five reasons why he's not the deliverer. Yeah. <laughs> and in effect tries to talk God out of it. Uh, and I'm not sure that's even the right way to put it. But it is, we went through that in quite a bit of detail. But um, the bottom line is that because of the last um, section that we stopped with last week, Moses has accepted the charge, if you want to put it that way. And so the very next verse, which is where we want to pick up, uh, Moses heads back to Egypt. Now let's review a little bit, uh, take you back even a chapter or two. Why was Moses in Midian in the first place and at Mount Horeb, or we will later find out that's Mount Sinai? Uh, he is hurting the animals of now his father-in-law, Jethro, and he has been there 40 years. Uh, the Pharaoh, I believe it was the Moses III, um, regarded Moses as a rival. Um, he, that is, the Moses and Moses were both raised in the court of Hatshepsut, one of the most powerful women in, in the entire ancient world and certainly in the history of Egypt. And so when Moses did something that no Pharaoh would take particular attention to, killed an Egyptian overseer, um, <clears throat> he threatened Moses' life, and Moses ran. And as we said, he spent 40 years in, in Midian. Midian is that area east of the Dead Sea. It's, a, it's really a desert area is where it is. Well, anyway, I'm telling you more than you need to know. But now he's ready to go back. He has accepted it. He's convinced that God is going to be with him to be the deliverer. <clears throat> and so if you look at verse 18... And Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law. Remember, Jethro is a prince of Midian. Ruel is another one of his names. And said, let me return to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. Jethro said, go, and I wish you well. Now the Lord had said to Moses in Midian, go back to Egypt, for all those who wanted to kill you are dead. And as I said a moment ago, and we talked about that last week and the week before that even, this is through Moses III. He is dead. <clears throat> so now Moses, and God is, of course, instructing and superintending all this, is going to go back. So Moses took his wife and his sons. Now we'll learn a little more about them later on. He has had two sons, Gershom, G-E-R-S-H-O-M, and Eliezer. We will, we'll see them, we'll meet them a little later. But he has two sons and put them on the Duncan Star back to Egypt. Now notice this verse at the end of 20. And he took the staff of God in his hand. Now that should let your eye go back up to verse 17, where God said to him, take this staff in your hand so you can perform the signs with it and go back earlier in the chapter where God had said that staff, why put it on the ground, it becomes a serpent, remember that? So this now, the staff that he's holding, which presumably was simply the staff he used as a shepherd. But now it's become a tool and a sign and a visible manifestation of God being with Moses. And so the text is just saying that Moses, if you want to put it this way, Moses is ready. 
<laughs> to obey what God has said. Now, the next paragraph, verse 21 uh, through 23, we're introduced to a new Pharaoh, but we're introduced to something a little bit strange in the sense of what God is saying, Pharaoh, how, how Pharaoh's going to respond. The Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. Now, again, that should take you back to the previous chapter because God had performed various miracles and allowed Moses to do these. These are going to be the signs that he will use. But notice that next verse. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Now, I want to talk just a little bit about that very briefly. The Bible has a lot to say in both the Old Testament and the New Testament about a hard heart. Now, I don't I think you all know the heart's a metaphor. It's not the, you know, the organ in the center of your chest that pumps your blood through your body. Heart is a, a metaphor, a, a figure of speech representing the center of our will. It's the center of our will, our heart. And so when God says to Moses, it's really an extraordinary statement, I will harden his heart. Now, when someone's heart is hardened, the the New Testament speaks of it this way several times, it means God's spirit cannot pierce or penetrate that person's will. They're so hardened, they're so encrusted, that they're, they're no longer even remotely sensitive to God. So to have a hard heart is, generally speaking in Scripture, is to be in a hopeless position. Now what you're going to see, we'll, we'll chart this when we go through, we'll chart this when we go through the Exodus itself. But you will see this process where it will say, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And you'll see, see several of the response to the plagues that God will send. It will say, and Pharaoh hardened his heart against God. 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 Then it changes. Then it will say, God hardened his heart. Then the text says very clear that there, are, there will be, I, I think it's four more of the plagues. God hardened, and then it says, God hardens his heart so that God will receive the glory for the exodus. So now, God is making that decision, if you want to put it that way, to harden the heart of Pharaoh. So that then whatever happens in all the miraculous workings that will lead to the exodus, the freedom, the liberation of the children of Israel to Egypt, God will get the glory for that. So it raises kind of a theological question. He is hardening his heart, hardening his heart, hardening his heart, and then God hardens his heart. So this is how theologians talk about it. And many of you don't think this way, so I'm going to try to help you think as a theologian. Probably what the text is saying to us is, Pharaoh, hardness, hard, 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 he crossed the line there. 
For because of what he had done as an act of his will, that is Pharaoh, intentionally rejecting God and what God was doing, and even if you want to put it this way, the grace that God was extending. Look at what I'm doing, Pharaoh. Pay attention. I am I am the one true God. Not Ra and Amun-Ra that you're worshiping. I am the true God. And Pharaoh rejects it, rejects it, rejects it, rejects it. And so he crossed the line. Let's put it this way, no return. So God, God, because God's omniscient, God knew that he had crossed that line. So from now on, God will harden his heart for a greater glory. That's hard to put that together theologically, because, but if you, some of you have been with me a long, long enough time, remember the railroad tracks? Yeah. One side of the track is divine sovereignty, the other side of the track is human responsibility. And as you try to sort through those things through scripture, that creates tension for us. But here's one of those... Paul will then tell us in Romans chapter 9 that God did this for his glory. That is, God will receive glory even through the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. So it's, it's, it's an introduction. It's like a fore, by it I mean this verse, verse 21, is a foreshadowing of what we're going to see with a fairly detailed narrative of three and a half chapters coming up. This complex issue of hardening of a human heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart, act of his will, rejecting willfully, intentionally. And I would say we can conclude pretty seriously and, and with some confidence that he crossed the line where there was no longer hope for Pharaoh. So God now said, okay, I will then harden your heart. So, I want to just alert you to this, because we're going to see this coming up again. <clears throat> we, we don't know which has taken place. when, If we share Christ with someone, uh, and, and you can just tell, some say, oh, I'm not really interested in that. I mean, it's very definite. Um, and uh, they're, they're very outspoken sometimes about it, and it just kind of takes you back like, Wow, yeah. you know, it smiles and everything, and then suddenly you bring up this issue, and yeah. boom, you get that kind of response. But you still can't tell if they've hardened their heart or mm -hmm. if God's hardened their heart. So you continue to be at least sensitive to them, right? I mean, because we can't. There is no way, I don't think, from my reading of God's word that we ever have the ability or even the authority to conclude that a person is beyond hope. I, just, I don't believe we can make that decision. And I think, for the most part from Scripture, we are discouraged, even prohibited, <laughs> if you will. Because the Bible seems to be saying to us another way of thinking about it is that until a person takes their last breath, there's still hope that they would turn to him. I have known, and I'm sure some of you have too, I have known a number of people who it, they were literally on their deathbed and they put their faith in Christ at the last minute. So I think it's wise for us to never, that's why I hesitate to bring this up, but it's, it's going to come up when we get into the Exodus starting, uh, the uh, plagues in, in chapter 7. It's going to come up because the text is very clear. I hard, he hardened his heart. This is Pharaoh hardens heart, hard to harden, and then says God hardened his heart. And that's going to come up. So one of you astute, clear, uh, objective, and forward-thinking intellectual person is going to ask that question. So I thought I'd anticipate it and bring it out now. I was speaking of Fred, of course, that he would be the one who would ask that question.
All right. So we're at this at this point in, in things. We're we're merely channels, and we can. I think that's a great the flow towards a person and a great they, they accept it or deflect it. That's mm -hmm. that's their. Mm -hmm. I, I think as long as, as long as we are realistic in that way. I've seen some well-intentioned Christians who are kind of scalp hunters. And, mm. and uh, why well, save so many people this week? Oh, heavens, yeah. 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 When you really didn't do anything. <laughs> you were a mere instrument. Yeah, yeah. God's the one who really... No, I think that's that's right. To see, to see ourselves, whatever the context is, in this case, just sharing the good news with someone... We are the channel of the instruments God uses. We don't have anything to do with it. Any, anything that occurs in a person's life is the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, all we are are the instruments. But it is all, you know, I've often said this to, to my students over the years. God is calling you to be faithful. Leave the results to him. Because if you take on, and I, I mean, I was told this uh, when I started, when I was ordained many, many years ago, back in the early 80s, my mentor said to me, Jim, do not take upon yourself the burden of changing people. That's God's business. You just be faithful in what God is asking you to do. And that was, for me, I mean, I've never forgotten that. That, that has always been a liberating uh, approach that I've had to what God asked me to do. And it, it's, it's not always easy to do that because you get involved in people's lives and you just you can become burdened by what's happening to them and their refusal to do what you know and God knows they should be doing. And you just, you cannot take that burden. Uh, young men and, and women, well, anyone, I shouldn't just say young, but individuals who take upon themselves that burden of trying to change people, you'll burn out and you will lose the excitement and exhilaration of what you're doing for the Lord. Whatever you do, I mean, your vocation, everything we do, we're representing Christ. That's all a part of that. But it's so refreshing. It really is. It's refreshing to know, prepare, for me, what I do, prepare, study hard, teach it, but leave the results to God. If you don't have that approach, then you're just, oh, my God, the burden becomes almost insurmountable. So, yes, exactly. I love that word, a channel. That's what God's asking us to do. I, just to follow up, uh, the striving, I will no longer strive with you. You think of uh, Saul, <clears throat> and it's like he sort of left him. I don't know if that would be the same as hardening his heart. I think in a way it was. It's a little bit of a different language there in First Samuel 15, but it's the same kind of... Saul, and again, only the Lord knows where that is, but Saul crossed that line. And, um, any hope of uh, Saul doing what God wanted him to do as the king of Israel uh, was over. And so it, the text says as well that God's spirit left Saul and came upon David. And that's a little bit of, it's the anointing of, of, of the mantle of leadership. It's not spirit of salvation type situation, but it's, uh, yeah. Now, if you'll notice one more thing in that same verse, I'm sorry, in the same paragraph, verse 22, then 
Say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. Again, foreshadowing. That's the tenth and final plague. But this becomes a really important point. Israel, we see that right here in chapter 4 of Exodus. Israel, the children of Israel, the, the people, are called the firstborn of God because they are his chosen ones. And so the firstborn in any family situation gets the blessing of the father. In the ancient world, it's a little more operative than it is today. And so God is saying, <coughs> excuse me, if you don't let my firstborn go, I will take your firstborn, which is exactly what God will do. Now, again, that's just foreshadowing what's coming. Moses needs to hear that, and now the reader hears it as this is revealed. Now, the next paragraph is almost bizarre. It's startling. I mean, it really is. It's, it's almost bizarre because it's not some of the language, and you, you have to figure out what is going on. So let me introduce it with some covering thoughts, okay, <laughs> so that I think we can make sense out of it. Moses is the deliverer of Israel. Assigned by God, despite his resistance, here are the five reasons why you made a mistake, God, you know, but Moses, it does become the deliverer. Um, Moses is representing now, as the deliverer, the covenant people of Israel. What covenant? The Abrahamic covenant. Now, you know, from Genesis 17, which we studied months and months ago, what's the sign of the Abrahamic covenant? Circumcision. So it is an assumed fact that Moses would circumcise his boys, right? Now say right. Right. (laughs) I mean, I'm trying to, you know, nobody's, you're all playing living statues, so I'm thinking, are you even with me? But so, I mean, it was just assumed he would do that, but he didn't. (laughs) So what that means is his two boys Gershom and Eliezer don't own the covenant. His two boys do not have the sign of that unconditional, unilateral, covenant relationship God's had with the people of Israel. So here's the deliverer, the top guy, and he he has not been obedient to God. And so what is even more extraordinary is his wife will do it. So, and it's just, it's short, it's pithy, it's quick, and we move on. In a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. That's how the NIV translates it. But that's accurate. Because of the lack of covenant loyalty on the part of the deliverer. How can I send you to deliver Israel from bondage if you are not following a basic command of the covenant? But Zipporah, remember that's his wife, that's Moses' wife, took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. The the phraseology there in Hebrew is really hard. Some translations have threw it at Moses' feet. But it is, it is to be understood as a deliberate act of shaming Moses. 
That's what she's doing. It's a deliberate act of shaming him. Surely you are the bridegroom of blood to me, she said. The Lord let him alone. At that time, she said the bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. That's it. That's it. You have three verses, and that's it. <laughs> but it just wasn't logical, you know. Moses is telling him all the reasons why he can't do this thing, and, 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 and the Lord is convincing him that he can, and even gives him his brother Aaron to help him, and then the next thing I read, he's going to be ready to take him out. Yeah. So, you know, it was struggling in that way. <laughs> but it, it demonstrates two things to us. Number one is God's covenant and the obligations of the covenant are absolutely irrevocable. And number two, a leader always sets the example for his people. So how can Moses lead the children of Israel out of bondage in Egypt if he is not being loyal to the covenant? And he's not. I had to do some additional reading. Good. Way to go, Woody. In study Bible, you know. Way to go. Good deal. I'm glad you it, did. It seems odd to me that God didn't bring this up to Moses and say, this is what you need to do. There's nothing about that. All of a sudden, bang, he's going to kill him. And we don't have any <clears throat> Okay, John, John, that. should Moses have known this? Should Moses have understood that it was his covenant obligation to do this to his boys? Yes. Why should God have to say, oh, by the way, Moses, don't forget Genesis 17. You know, Moses, remember? Because leaders are always called to a higher standard. And in being called to a higher standard, they must set the example for their people. And he is headed back to Egypt. He, he's immediate. You'll see it in the next chapter. He, the very first thing he does is he goes immediately to Pharaoh's court. So how can he be the deliverer if he's not being loyal to the covenant? And so, I mean, it's a, and, and that, this is, I think, accurate. The ultimate shame is to have a woman do what you're supposed to do. And this is in the ancient world, not, not in 2017. You know, we're in a different era. <laughs> But in the ancient world, and certainly in, in, in the biblical culture of the ancient world, to have a woman do what you are supposed to do is a shameful rebuke. And that's what's going on here. This is a severe, shameful rebuke of Moses. And yet at the same time, it is, it, it, when God's killing, this is serious to the Lord. What's serious? The covenant relationship and the covenantal obligation relationship, which is having the mark of the sign or the sign of the covenant, which is circumcision. And that Moses didn't do this to his boys is egregiously rebellious. Isn't that a great word, egregiously? That's just a great word. Egregiously rebellious to God. I mean, it's utter defiance. Willful, intentional defiance of God. We don't know if he just uh, let it slip by or... The fact that he spent 40 years with the Pharaoh and then 40 years in the desert, maybe he just spaced it off or... 
I don't think so. I don't, I mean, I don't think, and you're, you're raising this, but I don't think it's that. It is willful uh, disobedience of Moses. But why did he, it, I don't think it, he forgot it. Is he postponing it? Is he saying, uh, oh, I'll, get I'll take care of that tomorrow like a lot of us do. I'll take care of that tomorrow. And then tomorrow finally comes and you still haven't done it. You know. I'm sticking up for him because as well, Fred said, Moses and I were the same age. You know? So I was trying to make some alibis for him. There. A little forgetful. Yeah, I forget things. <laughs> yeah, all right, you don't forget that. <laughs> was she a believer, Jim? I think... Um, I think we have to assume that she is. I mean that. We we do have to assume that. Um, but, you know, we'll, we'll read this in not too many chapters. She kind of disappears from the scene. You know, she's going to go back to Jethro during some of the intensity of the confrontation coming up. Moses will send them back for protection. But I think we have to assume that she is, uh, uh, Fred. I, I, don't, I don't see any reason why we shouldn't. But at the same time, there's no specific reason where it says she owns. But here, what she is doing is covenant obedience. With conviction. Yeah, and I mean, she is, and, and the, language of, of, the language of verse 25 is the language she is intentionally shaming Moses. That's what she's doing. She's shaming him because of his, uh, there's no other way to put it, of his just defiance, his disobedience to God. A leader, now, you know, this is a principle that's all through God's word, but a leader is always called to a higher standard. And that's why, you know, when you read in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, the scripture is very clear. Choose your church leaders carefully. Don't just fill slots. Choose them carefully. And so, um, you know, if you're in, in a business or HR or, in leadership of a company, and you're choosing someone uh, to lead in a particular area, you got to really do your homework. You have to really make sure you're hiring the right person. Um, because whatever mantle of leadership they will assume, there's a higher act of accountability, a higher level of responsibility and accountability. Certainly from God's perspective, but <laughs> always, a leader always is called to a higher standard. And that if, if you don't take that very seriously, um, you ultimately pay for that, either in the life of your company or your ministry or whatever it is. I, uh, Ed, you had your hand up. Yeah, well, I was kind of wondering why he didn't do it, but we kind of covered something that we're not probably sure. But how old were his sons when they talked about this? Well, um, th 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 that's a great question. It's hard to know exactly how old they are. But it would seem probably reasonable. These are not young adults, and it's doubtful they're probably even teenagers. They're probably, you know, seven, eight, maybe a little less, maybe a little more. Uh, <clears throat> and that, because remember, the, the, the Abrahamic covenant material in, in, in chapter 17, eight days is when you would circumcise the child, the boy. And... Um, so at least he's beyond eight days. So I'm, I'm assuming, and it's hard, we just don't know for sure, but most commentators and expositors assume that they're your boys, they're young boys. 
it, they're not adults, I don't think. We shouldn't conclude that. And because of some of the things we'll read just a little bit later on, when Moses sends them back to Midian for protection, you just get the sense these are not old children. You know, so. She was also being protected by Moses. God is... No, she was. Oh, she was, yes, yeah, absolutely. She, she must have. Absolutely. I mean, the Lord must have communicated. Absolutely. Moses was at risk. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that why his life is in jeopardy. This is the reason. And so she acts. <laughs> but it is, it is, it, I mean, it, it gives single word of her motives. Yes, it's protective and so on, but she is publicly shaming Moses here. That is really what she's doing. Publicly, this is openly, or, or <coughs> well, it would spread. Around I mean, the, they're a family, and, and yeah. you know, they're they're servants and so on. So I, oh, you know, yeah. it's not like they're in front of the children of Israel, but it's yeah. not. It, this is a this is an act of shame, uh, and there's no other way to put that. That's exactly what she's doing. This is serious. This is serious business. This is very very serious. Now, one other thing before we get to chapter five. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes. <laughs> Kind of uh, waited just a little bit in, in Moses, understanding Moses a little bit. He was he was born. His mother put him in the basket. Mm-hmm. His sister watched. Mm. His the the the, the daughter of Pharaoh <coughs> right. came. The sister intervened. The mother suckled him. Yep. And he was raised in the in the under the tutelage of, of a female, and so. God may be saying it, it's, it's a female that's going to have to wake this guy up and, and you know, yeah. bop, bop, yeah. give him a dope slap, yeah. you know, and, and, and let's get on with it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it, this is, it, as we said at the very beginning, we started, this is bizarre, but yet it's extremely serious. And that's how we're to understand this. This is serious business, this is the covenant. Now, one more thing. The Lord said to Aaron, I'm in verse 27, now go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he met Moses at the mountain. God kissed him, remember their brothers. And Moses told Aaron everything the Lord had sent him to say and also about the signs he had commanded him to perform. Back to the previous chapter. Remember what those three signs are. Moses and Aaron brought together all the elders of the Israelites. So now... You have a summary in verse 27, 28 of what had happened at Horeb. Now they're in Egypt. So this isn't a tight chronology. It's just skipping from one big thing to another. And Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He also performed the signs before the people, and they believed. Okay, now what is going on? The leaders of Israel, the elders of Israel, these would be the heads of the tribes and the heads of the clans. They're all in Goshen. And so Aaron and Moses, the signs are performed. What signs? The staff turning into a serpent, the leprous hand. Remember all that? And when they heard that the Lord, now notice the title, the Yahweh was concerned about them and seen their misery, they bowed down and worshiped. Can you imagine 430 years and now the oppression and exploitation of being enslaved. Now the deliverers here. Hope, exhilaration, excitement, anticipation. So now that makes sense. Why do they bow down and worship? God has heard our prayers. 
that they have some rough times ahead of them. They're not going to go from this announcement to getting out of Egypt in a week. It's tough going. And chapter 5 indicates to us how tough this is going to be. Getting ahead of ourselves just a bit. From this point on, how long did it take them to actually start to leave Egypt? In years? Uh, It's going to be... um, it's going to be over. Uh, it's going to be over a year here, till they are actually uh, beginning to organize the exodus from Egypt. Because even that's going to take several months to do that. I'm not sure I can give you an exact, but it's over a year. Now, this Pharaoh, who whom we are introduced to in verse one, afterward Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh. This Pharaoh is Amenhotep the second. If you want me to write it on the board, you may not even be interested in this kind of thing. But if you are interested in the history and back of this, this is Amenhotep II. The year is 1445 BC. And so everything that they had been preparing, that is they, I mean Moses and Aaron, everything they had been preparing for psychologically and spiritually is now about to unfold. So they go into the court of Pharaoh. Now, um, I don't know if, if you, you can do this if you, if you wish, uh, just to see the geography of this real, real quickly. If you look at the map that's on page nine of your notepad, I just want to illustrate to you one or two really quick things here because this is really important. I want to see the I want you to see the geography of this. This is this is uh, something that's important. They are in Goshen. They meaning the children of this are in Goshen. Moses Moses had been in Midian over here on the east side of the Dead Sea. He had met the Lord at the burning bush at Horeb, which is in the southern part of the Raven Peninsula. So he and Aaron then would have this is an international highway here. They would have gone up this highway and now they're in Goshen talking to the children of Israel, the leaders of, of Israel. Uh, they perform the signs, the people, the, the, the leaders embrace them and so on. So where do they go? Memphis. You see that? It's also called N-O-P-H, Nope, but it's in parentheses Memphis. That's not Memphis, Tennessee. Memphis, Memphis is the capital city of the new kingdom which is really interesting because all the earlier kingdoms, all the earlier kingdoms, the capital city, now the box is here, but the capital city was much farther south along the Nile River and the Thebes and some other places. So this is in the new kingdom. The capital city is much, much closer to the Delta, which makes it historically validating for what the Bible is saying. Because some earlier critics would say, well, Moses and Aaron are not going to go, they're going to go down to meet the Pharaoh, then go back to Goshen, then go down to meet, yeah, oh yeah, that's not that hard to do because the capital city is in Memphis. It's not that far of a distance. Are you with me? I'm just trying to, what the Bible is saying here can be validated by the history of the New Kingdom with Amenhotep as the Pharaoh. And I just want, I just want you to see that. It's, this is not an unbelievable scenario 
that Moses and Aaron are going back and forth between Goshen and Memphis. That's not, it's not that big of a distance. So they go from Goshen where they met the children of Israel's leaders and so on, and they show up at the court, and this is what they say. Now remember, they're speaking to Amenhotep II, who's a polytheist, who believes that the world is filled with many gods, whose chief god is Amun-Ra, who is the sun god, who pulls the sun across the, the sky daily on his chariot. And the Nile River Valley, which is the pulse beat, the center, the epicenter of everything in ancient Egypt, is the bloodstream of the god Osiris. A world filled with gods, and they show up and say, this is what Yahweh, the Elohim of Israel, says. Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness, to worship me, to be devoted to me. Now, all he is going to hear is some god of these people that have been enslaved want me to let them go out of Egypt and worship him. Now, just humanly speaking, how is a polytheistic autocrat going to process that? This is the most idiotic thing I've ever heard. So Pharaoh responds, who is Yahweh? that I should obey him and let Israel go. I do not know Yahweh, and I will not let Israel go. So, in all likelihood, what he is saying is accurate. I don't know anything about Yahweh. Why in the world would I let you go? I'm not under his authority, and he doesn't fit into my pantheon of gods. No! And I, the tone of my voice is probably somewhat accurately reflecting the tone of Amenhotep II's voice. No! Why would I let you go? <laughs> I mean, it's an outrageous and a ridiculous claim. But this is God speaking. Verse 3. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met us, now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. Now, the hard part here in verse 3 a little bit is to understand who is speaking here. Who is, is this summarizing what people in the court have observed, what they heard, what they knew about, or is this the children of Israel speaking? <clears throat> Because the phrase is the God of the Hebrews, which seems to indicate these aren't the Jews. These are people in the court. These are, these are people that are perhaps the advisors and those that surround the Pharaoh. We have heard about him. This God of the Hebrews. Pharaoh, don't take this lightly. Then, verse 4, the Pharaoh responds. But the king of Egypt then said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to work. You're giving them baseless hope. You're giving them anticipation that is not realistic. I'm not letting them go. Get them back to work. Then Pharaoh 
said this, Look, the people of the land are now numerous, and you are stopping them from working. They're a commodity. Our economy depends on them. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers. Now make sure you understand this distinction because it's going to be important in the next two paragraphs. Slave drivers are Egyptians. Overseers are Jews. In other words, the way, and this was very typical of the Egyptian organization, it's like a hierarchy. Here's Pharaoh, and then there's the organizer, then there's the slave drivers, those who organize the forced labor forces. They're Egyptians. They're powerful people. Then below them are overseers who are Jews, who are helping to subdivide all the workers. So the slave drivers are Egyptians, responsible to Pharaoh. The overseers are Jews, responsible to the Egyptian slave drivers. There's a hierarchy. Uh, Jim? Yeah, please. Uh, my, my Bible says the taskmasters of the people and their foremen. Would the taskmaster be equal to the That's driver? correct, yes. Uh, the foreman would be, uh, they would be uh, Jews that were... Uh, Designated. Uh, right. Yeah. I mean, they're different. Different in your translation. They're translating that those, those two terms a little differently. NIV translates slave drivers and overseers. How does yours translate it? Uh, Taskmasters. Task okay. Foremen like the the overseers. Yeah. But they would be Jews. They would be Israelis who work for the Egyptians. And by the way, they were the most hated. The, the overseers, the foreman, because you would be perceived as betraying your people. Right. This is the ESV. Yeah, okay, and which is a very fine translation. Verse 7, you are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They're lazy. This is why they're crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for them so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. Straw was mixed with clay and sand, and as the straw deteriorated, it created an acid that really bound the clay and sand together into something very, very hard. So straw was absolutely necessary. It was absolutely, you again, did you hear what I said? You have the sand, you have the clay and mixed together, but the straw, you'd mix it in, and as the straw deteriorated pretty quickly, it created an acid, which bound everything together very tightly, made it really hard. So if Pharaoh's not going to provide the straw, and they have to go out and get it, but yet the quota hasn't reduced, what's just happened to their workload? And the Israelis aren't going to be really excited about that. They're not going to be ready to embrace this new regime under Moses. They're going to start pushing back. This is God's plan to it is really God's set plan. the stage. It is God's plan. Dramatic. Is that what you Absolutely. see in this? So that more and more they will see the absolute miraculous power of God in delivering. So what do you make of <coughs> Moses compromising what he asked Pharaoh for? Because, I mean, the Lord didn't tell Moses, I'm going to just have you take him on a little holiday for three days. Moses, or God did say to them earlier, one of the things I want you to do is go to the wilderness and worship me. And Moses, this is where you're going to worship me, right here at Horeb. So that's not, that's not a lie. 
But what you are saying, I think, is it sounds as if the way they're putting it in verse 2 that we'll come back then. Yeah, but he, he didn't say that, did he? He didn't say that. Just give me three days. But they didn't say we're going to return. But the inferences. But it's not, it's not a lie because God had said, you are going to worship me here. <clears throat> but it's not the full truth either. But Moses no, you are correct. Moses seems to be... So human to me. That's a very good conclusion. That's how you should look at this. Yeah, that's it. You know, you face somebody very powerful and you want to ask for something and you compromise a little bit. Or only, here's the entire story, but I'm only going to tell you half the story. I'll tell you the rest of the story later, which is really what he's doing. I'm going to tell you part one of the story, Pharaoh. I'll tell you the rest of the story after you let him go. We're not coming back, Pharaoh. We'll see you. Now, I'm really being facetious there, and I shouldn't be. I do, and this is one of the things expositors struggle with. It seems as if Moses, he's not lying, but he's not telling the full story of what God's going to do here. They are not coming back, Pharaoh. We are going to go worship the Lord, and we are going into the wilderness, and we're going to hold a three-day festival to him. That's all happened, but we're not coming back. Because when you have the period at the end of verse 1, the inference is they're coming back. So, I, Jim, I can't answer that. I love how you put it. Moses is Charlton Heston. He is a human. <laughs> he is a human. And he has the foibles and inadequacies and uncertainties of a human. We saw it in the, last week when the five reasons why I'm not to deliver Moses, uh, God, find somebody else. And, of course, God is not real interested in that. So every one of the heroes of Scripture are like that, aren't they, almost? And we were like that. And, and exactly. I mean, that's why it's appealing because... You know, I don't know if I'd even told Pharaoh that much. I said, Pharaoh, we, we need to go over to Starbucks and get a cup of coffee. So you got to let us go. All right? And don't tell him any more. Just tell him that. You know. And so, I mean, uh, with all that is in back of the, the history that we talked about earlier of why the Pharaohs enslaved the Jews and all of that, this is a real threat to the kingdom to have two million people acting rebelliously against the Pharaoh. This is not a good thing. And so Pharaoh is threatened by everything that that exchange just surfaced. So his response is the typical response of an autocrat. No, and I'm going to make your life even more miserable, which is really what he's doing. Then the slave drivers, in verse 10, and overseers went out and said to the people, this is what Pharaoh says. Now just imagine, imagine what this would be like because remember, the overseers are the Jews, the Jewish foremen. They go to the people and say, Pharaoh said, I will not give you any more straw. Go and get your own straw wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced. So the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for the straw. The slave drivers, and they're the Egyptians, kept pressuring them, saying, complete the work required for each day, just as when you had straw. 
and Pharaoh's slave drivers beat the Israelite overseers they had appointed, demanding, why haven't you met your quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? Things are looking up for the Jews, aren't they? No. It's horrible. Verse 15, then the Israelite overseers went and appealed to Pharaoh. Remember, the, the overseers, these are Jews. Why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, yet we're told make bricks. Your servants are being bitten, beaten, but the fault is with your own people. Did you notice something? Three times they said your servants. We're loyal to you, Amenhotep. We're loyal to you. Reward our loyalty by removing this ridiculous order. You follow me? I mean, you see, they're very shrewd. These, these Israeli overseers, these, remember, the, the overseers, the foreman, they're the Jews. And so they go right to Pharaoh and say they're appealing to their, they want him to see their loyalty to him. So on that basis, please change the order. How'd Pharaoh respond? <laughs> lazy. The NIV translates it. Lazy. That's what you are. Lazy. That is why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice the Lord. Now get to work. You will not be given any straw, yet you must produce the full quota of bricks. The Israelite overseers realized they were in trouble when they were told you are not to reduce the number of bricks required of you each day. In trouble with the people, in trouble with the bosses. I think it was Fred who just said, what is happening is showing to us the very serious situation the Jews are now in. Only God can change this. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them and said, May the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and put a sword in their hand to kill us. This is a condemnation of Moses. It is a rejection of his leadership. And it is an admission. You have made it worse for us. You can't. All underlying this, underlying this is a sentiment. You can't be our deliverer. Things aren't better. Things are worse. So then what does Shelton Heston do? He returned to the Lord and said, Why, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? What word would you use to describe the sentiment of Moses? Discouraged. Discouraged? Let's make it stronger. Desperate. Desperate. <laughs> What's that? Whining. Whining? Yeah. And, and doubt. I mean, Moses is beginning to, to doubt that he really is the deliverer. You know, is this why you sent me, Lord? It, you know, it's like, I mean, you would think, I mean, I just think as a human, he would have expected if God is with him and all this that God had said, that he'd go into Pharaoh and said, you know, that's a good idea. Go. 
I'll let you go. Well, that's not what happened. And so Moses is doubting, you know, is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, notice that, to speak in your name, what's the implication? <laughs> Lord, I'm representing you. You're supposed to have gone before. This is working out. This ain't working out, Lord. He has brought trouble on his people, and you have not rescued your people at all. <gasps> you have not rescued your people at all. Seems to have forgotten some of the things that the Lord told Exactly. I was wondering exactly. back in the end of chapter 5 when Aaron told the people all that God had said. I wonder if he told them that Pharaoh's heart is going to be hardened and it's going to be a tough time ahead. That's a very good question. And, uh, we just don't know. We just he don't told know. Them everything. Yeah. It would seem to me that he would have shared that. Something to the effect, let's not expect Pharaoh to let us go immediately. Because he had told Moses, he's going to harden his heart. And so, um, but it's, you know, your word a while ago is the right word, the humanness of all these people. And aren't you like that sometimes? I know I am. I have a particular issue that I'm really praying about and working through and leave it to the Lord and it just blows up. Can I tell you a story? Sure. I think you know my parents are, my dad's 92, my mom's 89. Mom, Mom's fairly good health. Dad's terrible. He's basically an invalid. And he's falling now with regularity. He's just falling. And mom cannot get him up. And even a neighbor who has helped a bit, that because dad dead weight and he just can't help get him up either. So they call nine one one. So last uh, no, it would be about um, but eleven days ago, he fell and the um, the nine eleven guys, mom was uh, going out to get her hair um, hair appointment. I don't know what she was doing, but something with her hair, maybe a permanent or something like that. And she said to the guy, "I'm really kind of afraid to leave." leave my husband. And he said to her, you need one of those first alert things, those met alert things. Mm -hmm. And so mom, uh, she called me and I said, mom, has, I've been telling you that for 13 months. So she listens to an EMT guy, not her son. But anyway, so I just said, I'll, tell you what, I'll take care of it. Okay, I will take care of this. I'll order it. Because I said, some of these sales guys, there's a lot to, they're going to throw a lot at you. All, I'll, I'll just take care of it. I'll order it. And so I ordered it. I even paid for the first six months. And so it showed up. Delivered by FedEx, showed up. And I told her, Mom, the main thing you have to determine is just where you're going to put the box. Just you plug it in, just put the box. You don't want it on, you know, the kitchen sink. You know, put it in a, a place because wherever you are in the house, go out and had one of the GPS things that if Dad falls, it even, I had it all set up. It was just, there was no reason. So, they get it. They get, I get a phone call. We don't want this thing. <laughs> I Who said, is this now? No, no, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You know, what do you mean you don't want this thing? You had told me you wanted it. So we went through five telephone telephone exchanges. Want it? Oh no. Okay, now we'll take it. No, we don't want this. No, we're gonna take it. So the fifth time, I said, Mom, <coughs> you have changed your mind so many times. I said, What's wrong now? Well, it said that if nobody answers, they may have to break down the door. I said, well, of course. 
I said, well, sure, Mom. That Remember Peggy's sister, Linda, when she passed away on, with heart failure? Uh, they they called. She called 911. By the time I got there, she was dead. So they broke the door down. I mean, Mom, you want, it, you want them to be able to do that. What if you're gone and dead? Well, then it says that I'd be responsible for the repairs. I'm like, oh, well, all right. <laughs> I mean, it was just like, and she then was adamant. I don't want it. So I said, okay, I'll... I'll call you back tomorrow. Just think about it a little more. So I called her. That was Sunday afternoon. I called her back Monday. She already had mailed it back. Oh. That is not how I expected that to work out. I mean, that you know, I I thought for sure that finally she had agreed that it was a good. And my God, tell you, my dad got on the phone about the third phone call, and said, "Well, this thing automatically calls nine one one." I said, "That's right." Well, that's what I do. But I said, Dad, you're, he's, this what he said, I just crawl to the phone and call. And just process that sentence. Yeah, yeah. I said, Dad, you know. So anyway, yeah. I'm saying all that because not hardly comparable to the Moses thing. But when you pray about something, with 13 months, I had been talking about this with Mom and Dad. I thought finally with what the EMT guy had said, they're going to do it. Oh, anyway, so uh, for 31 hours, they had that. So, so now it's uh, anyway, just interesting. So I don't know quite what we're going to do with that. Isn't it interesting? I read our, your, our parents, when they become quite old, or become like little children. That's my mom and dad are like little children. They really are. I love them, and they're wonderful, but they're just stubborn early adolescents, you know. Anyway, so if you think of praying for my mom and dad, and pray for me as I'm trying to deal with my mom and dad. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the way the Bible uh, details and instructs us on these great leaders. Um, Moses had foibles, shortcomings. Uh, He stumbled, and yet, God, you used him. And as he grows and matures, even past 80, he just grows in his leadership skills and becomes a formidable uh, leader of the Exodus. He will take no compromise anymore with Pharaoh. He will not listen to Pharaoh's excuses. He will become bold, he will become courageous, and he will deliver the children of Israel as the instrument you uses out of bondage. That's a miraculous story. It's a great story. It's a powerful narrative. And we just learn again and again and again the importance of leaders who know you, walk with you, and even when they stumble, you keep rebuilding and reinforcing what you are asking them to do because they are the mere instruments that you use for your greater glory. So I thank you for each man here. May we be men regardless of what we do vocationally or or other responsibilities, men of faith, men who are growing in faith, growing in our dependence on you, growing in our understanding of you. Because the more we know about you and who you are and what you're doing and your power and your authority, the greater uh, it is for us to trust you and depend on you and yield to you in all things. So teach us to be men of faith. And even as that father said in Mark 9, I believe, but Lord, help my unbelief. Often that is where we are. We believe, but we still have doubts and and areas of unbelief. So strengthen our faith 
so that as we represent you in this culture, this world, may we represent you well in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.